nine verses. Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, who has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit. We come to you, our Creator, praying that you would open up your word to us so that we can hear what you have to say, so that we can be comforted and challenged and rebuked and loved. All the work that your Holy Spirit is performing in those of us who hear. Lord, we depend on you to be with us for the whole worship service, but also as we uh, look at your word, we pray that your spirit would be especially working in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've called this the uh, distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and I have to admit there's a little tension in my heart uh, with that title. Uh, to call myself righteous can easily introduce confusion, and, and it can introduce some self-righteousness, which is deadly uh, for any, any faith. Uh, but, obviously, I am saying that people who believe in Christ are righteous, and people who don't are the wicked. Uh, but it, it can sound like that, that I'm the reason that I'm righteous, and that I'm better than other people, and that I'm righteous, they're wicked, means I'm right, they're wrong, God loves me, God doesn't love them. It's, we have to be clear about this, so don't usually uh, like to throw around uh, Greek or Latin transit. We're going to do a couple here, because I think it will help us. So, in the New Testament, the word uh, for uh, declare righteous is dikaiosune. That's the Greek word, and that means to declare righteous. It's a legal or forensic term. It does not mean to make righteous. It means to declare. It's what a judge uh, would do. The other word that you might uh, have heard before, and you might be able to hear two words from it, 
uh, is a Latin word, and that is justificare. Uh, the Catholic Church uses the Latin Bible uh, primarily, and if you can listen to use, it sounds like just, so that's justify, and then if you hear facare, maybe it sounds like manufacture or to make. So you put those two together, and what the Catholic Church says, based on the Latin, is when God justifies, he makes righteous. So dikaiosune, the Greek word, the original word in the Bible, is to declare righteous. This one is to make and this really introduced all kinds of error in the church. Because to say that God makes a person righteous is, is a mile away from declaring righteous. And so that's what we need to remember, that God declares us righteous, and then he slowly makes us righteous by sanctification, not sanctification first. Uh, here's another term, and, and this is about all I know, so I don't have any more Latin or Greek terms. But to explain this dilemma, uh, Martin Luther came up with this phrase, which I'm sure most of you have heard before, either the English or the Latin part of it. He tried to get at the fact that we're both a saint or justified, but at the same time, we have this, this uh, old nature, and he said, simul justus, simultaneously justified at peccator, and I'm a sinner, like peccadillo or whatever you've heard. So at the same time, we're a saint, but we're also a sinner. So that'll be helpful as we look at uh, Psalm 28, and our outline will be very simple. Uh, one through two is the... Uh, Lament the, of the person who prays, three through five, is a cry for justice. Uh, six through seven, the prayer is heard. And then eight through nine, the blessing is shared. So as you know, uh, the psalm is, the book of Psalms, 150 chapters divided up into five books, uh, similar to the Pentateuch. There's one through four, which is book one, that's what we're in, uh, Psalm 28, 42 through 47, uh, sorry, 42 through 72 is book 2, 73 through 90 is 3, uh, 91 to 106 is uh, book 4, and the last one is 107 to 150. But you probably also know that within those big groupings, there's, there's little groupings. And we have one here in Psalm um, 28, it's the last of three psalms. 26, 27, and 28. I'm going to read what Derek Kidner uh, says about this. In each of the Psalms, 26 to 28, the Lord's house comes into view. In Psalm 26, the worshiper, as he approaches, is searched by God's demand for sincerity, and in the last verse rejoices to have found access. In Psalm 27, he sees this house as a sanctuary from his enemies and as the place of vision, face-to-face -face with God. In our Psalm 28, he brings forward his petition, spreading his hands as a suppliant towards the Holy of Holies and receives his answer. So if you look at this psalm, I think you'll see the, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked 
and hopefully this will emerge as we follow along. And I'm just going to follow the outline that I said. Uh, We'll keep it simple. And each time we look at a, a few verses, I'll give you what or how God treats the righteous and how God, how God treats the uh, wicked, and you'll see a big contrast. So in 1 through 2, he says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my plea for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. What he's saying here is God listens to believers' prayer. He does not listen to the wicked. When you, when you look at what he says, he, he's talking to God and he's saying, listen to me. I need your attention. I want your ear. Hear the voice of my plea. It's almost as if he's saying, hear me or I perish. He's saying, hear me. I'm yours. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. I I belong to you. Listen to my prayer. And then down in verse 7, and you see this also at the end of verse 2, he's almost saying, hear me because I worship you. I follow your rules. I'm one of your people. In, In these few verses, there's a persistence, a constant pleading. It's not a one-time prayer. He doesn't pray once and then walk away. This person will not take silence for an answer. This person knows he needs God. He's looking to God. You may say, well, yes, that's what people in the Bible do. But you can always look to a parent. You can look to friends. You can look to people with money. You can look to political leaders. He's going to the only one who wants to hear him and the only one who can answer his prayer. Uh, whether it's like Brian praying in front of all of you or whether you're praying by yourself, you actually think God hears you. I mean, I think that. But you stop and think about that. We actually think the creator of the universe listens to our prayers. There's billions of people in the world, and you think God listens to your prayer. No wonder unbelievers have a hard time with prayer. Because we actually think that when we pray, God listens to us. And he wants to hear our voice. There's a quote by Francis Schaeffer who said this in the 70s. It's kind of long, but it's, it's good. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, you can tell it's in the 70s, nor even the threat of rationalism or the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually or corporately tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of God's people, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Well, that's not true for this uh, author of the Psalms. He goes right directly to God. So when you pray... Focus on God. 
whether you pray in front of hundreds like this or just a few or all by yourself, focus on God. No matter what you sound like, no matter what you sound like you think to others or to yourself, pray to God. And make sure when you pray, you're praying to God because He hears you and He loves you. So in 1 through 2, God listens to the believer's prayers. He does not listen to the wicked. We'll get into that as we uh, go down further. And then 3 through 5, God rewards the righteous, but He gives the wicked their due. I think in this psalm, the psalmist is saying, don't treat me like the wicked. You know, don't carry me away. I'm different. He says, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. And then he says, give to them according to their work. In fact, all of verse 4 is the psalmist saying, give them what they deserve. Give them justice. And you never want to ask justice from God. He says, give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. He keeps repeating this in verse 4. That may sound like vengeance to you. I don't think it is. I don't think it's raw vengeance. I think he's expressing what God says in his word. Verse, uh, verse 5, he says, God will tear them down. He opposes the wicked. He's, he's dead set against the wicked, and he's not that way with the righteous. Look at what the other verses in the Old Testament say about this. Look at uh, 1 Kings 2.32. Now, this is not God. It's Solomon. But he's expressing something that you find in the Scripture. He's talking about Joab, who killed two uh, people. And Solomon is just coming into his kingship. And he says in 1 Kings 2.32, The Lord will bring his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with a sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Isaiah 59 says, According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. In other words, all those places that have opposed him, he will give them what they deserve, what their deeds deserve. In Psalm 106, they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. So you may say, well, that's Old Testament. You know, God doesn't do that in the New Testament. In the Old Testament... Uh, they did something wrong and God would judge, but in the New Testament, I'm sure you've heard people say this to you, my God is not a God of wrath. Anybody ever said that to you? Uh, look at what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. It was common knowledge that God would do that. This is what one of the thieves on the cross said to the other thief. So there's two thieves and there's Christ. And remember, the one thief is uh, goading Christ. And the other thief rebukes him and he says this, 
we are suffering justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. <laughs> I mean, you're on the cross and you're saying, you can tell Christ is innocent. Don't criticize him. We're getting what we deserve. This is what uh, Paul says in Romans 2. God will render to each person according to his deeds. In 2 Corinthians 5, 10, I mean, we could go on, but here's one last one. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this same theme that you see in the Old Testament is found in the New Testament. All right, let's look at uh, review, and we'll go on to 6 and 7. In 1 through 2, God listens to believers' prayers. He does not listen to the wicked. We'll pick up this in our next uh, few verses. God rewards the righteous, but God gives the wicked their due. And now God answers the prayer of believers but God does not listen or answer the prayer of the wicked. He does not listen to the prayer of the wicked. So in 6 through 7, uh, there's a little turn in here because 1 through 5, the psalmist is talking directly to God. And then in verse 6, he, referring to God, he says, for he has heard. So for some reason, there's a, a slight uh, turn in the and the way the author is speaking. He said, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. He's just full of praise. He's so happy that God has, has heard him. So in verse 5, it's directed to God. Now he said he has heard. So here's another distinction between believers and the wicked. The wicked do not have God's ear. While no one deserves anything from God, the wicked are not given God's attention. This is what the psalmist says in 7. He's, he's not saying that God is good. He's saying He's my strength. He's my shield. My heart trusts in him. It's like the psalm that everyone loves in Psalm 23. David in that psalm doesn't say, God's a, a shepherd. He says, God is my shepherd. He watches over me. I love him and he loves me. God hears the righteous when they pray. He does not hear the wicked. In Proverbs 15, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. There's a huge distinction between those who know Christ and those who don't. Proverbs 28, 9, if anyone turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Now you think of the people that you know that want nothing to do with God's Word. They don't want to pay any attention. Even their prayer is an abomination to God. Now in, in John 9, Christ heals a young man who was born blind, and they bring his parents up. And his parents 
are in front of these august leaders of the synagogue. And you can imagine they have clothing uh, that shows how important they are. And they're asking him about who healed their son. And finally, the father says in John 31, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Now, in this case, he's saying you can tell that Christ is someone special from God because of this, but he starts out saying, well, everybody knows God doesn't listen to sinners. And that's the sad uh, state of affairs with unbelievers. Finally, in 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. That's the way he is to the righteous. But to the unrighteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's not just that sometimes he'll listen. His face is against those who do evil. Now, I just want to say briefly, uh, when we say that God answers our prayer, it doesn't mean that that we're saying God gives me what I ask for in prayer at all times. So, for instance, uh, I want to be married to uh, another person, and I ask God, and I really want this. Well, God may say, "Eh, let's wait. Maybe not tell you, but say, this is the person, but you're going to wait. God may say, yeah, that's the person I want you to marry. And maybe some of you experience this, God may say, no way. It's not because that person is bad, is that the two of you are not the right fit. And so God answers our prayers, but not, he doesn't give us exactly what we want at all times. So you've seen in 1 through 2, God listens to believers' prayer. He does not listen to the wicked. God rewards the righteous in 3 through 5, but he gives the wicked their due. 6 through 7, he answers the prayer of believers. He does not listen or answer the wicked. And God lovingly cares for his people, but he does not in verses 8 through 9. He does not lovingly care. He does not save his people. In verses 8 through 9, the Lord is the strength of his people. He's the saving refuge of his anointed. And then in verse 4, he's piling on verbs. There's uh, save your people, bless your heritage, be their shepherd, and carry them forever. This is just a, a beautiful ending to this psalm. I love the last phrase of this. Be their shepherd. So the, sh- the shepherd in the Bible is a, is a huge theme, as you all know. You know, I referenced Psalm uh, 23, but it didn't start with Psalm 23. Um, Moses is a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Amos, it just goes on. There are so many shepherds in the Bible. And, of course, the Lord Jesus is called the shepherd. He's called the good shepherd in John 10. He's called the great shepherd in uh, Hebrews 13:20, And then he's called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. Shepherding 
is, is a unique role. It's, it's got a unique imagery. It's a picture of God's love and tenderness toward us. The idea of shepherding includes what sheep are, which that's not a real compliment to call a sheep. What they need, how a shepherd provides, and the, the consequences of having a shepherd, or the, the benefits. I think that's what Psalm 23 shows is, is the benefit of, of having this good shepherd. You know, the first time we hear about God being a shepherd, it's, it's Jacob in Psalm uh, sorry, in Genesis 48, 15. He's at the end of his life. He's, he's clearly dying. Uh, Joseph, his favorite son, is around him, and, but he's got, he's got his other sons around him, and there's probably grandchildren. And he, he says this phrase, God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And I love that because I, I don't know I think Jacob is thinking, I haven't been the easiest sheep. I've been kind of crafty. I made a lot of mistakes. But we say that a, a shepherd has a rod and a staff. You know, the rod is for animals. It's not for the sheep. The staff is just kind of gently, gently getting those sheep in line. And as Jacob looks back, he says, He's had to use that long stick to reel me in. But he's been a good shepherd all my life. Shepherd is not really a job. It's a calling. You know, a shepherd can't clock out at five and tell the sheep to stay put so I'll be back at eight in the morning. Shepherd is always thinking of where to find water, where to find food, where they would rest at night. I've never been a shepherd. I don't even know anybody who is. But I think of a shepherd as just someone standing out in the field just kind of, you know, looking at sheep. But they have to be alert. They have to plan where they're going to eat, where they're going to sleep. They're always vigilant, looking for animals that want to eat the sheep. So the shepherd's always thinking and planning, where will I rest tonight? The sheep are not aware of this care at all. They have no wants if a shepherd is good. They eat, drink, lay down, and have a worry in the world. And that's the benefit of the shepherd. And, and they never thank the shepherd. The shepherd is almost universally understood as a protector, a provider, a nurturer, a guide. And these are all descriptions of God's attributes. The Lord is the shepherd of Israel. Jesus said the, sh the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, explaining his own mission in life. He's the one who lays down his life for us, his sheep. So the psalmist says, be their shepherd. He knows God is a shepherd. Be their shepherd. Save your people. Bless your heritage. I'd like to have an inheritance. Be nice to have a maybe property, money. But just think of God. We're his inheritance. We're his heritage. What a gift, huh? But he claims us as his own. We're his heritage. He loves us. So he says, Bless, bless your heritage. God is a giver, 
not a taker. He's always giving to his people. He doesn't take from us. We, uh, at the end of the service, we always have this blessing. And, you know, you may look at that and say, what a nice little way to just wrap up the service. It's kind of happy. It's nice to go out of here with a, with a happy little phrase. But actually, that's very significant because from Genesis on to Revelation, God is always blessing and giving good to his people. So at the end of the service, we say that a holy and righteous and eternal God is not against you. He is for you if you are in Christ. He wants to bless you. And it's a triune eternal blessing that we end the service with. It's really, it's really an awesome, outstanding thing to consider that God blesses you. But here's, here's what I like the best. Uh, this, this last phrase. He says, be their shepherd and carry them forever. So I want to look at this uh, briefly. God carries his people. He's a shepherd. And there's a few verses that I'd like to look at you with. One is not God speaking. The first is Moses speaking. Uh, Moses is upset, as, as he often is with God. And, and he says to God, Did I conceive all these people in Numbers 11? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? which is what he thinks God does, evidently. In Isaiah 40, 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. Now, I want to talk about how you carry a sheep. Again, I don't know. I did look on YouTube, so now I'm an expert. But I saw different ways. I've seen pictures of l- lambs, and both, uh, both legs are on either side of the head, right? Front and the back. Then I saw uh, carrying lambs like a backpack. So the two legs are in front, and then the, the sheep is down there, the head there. I saw them carrying that way. I even saw one where a shepherd, I mean, I'd never seen this before, but put a a lamb in a bag and then put a band on his head and he had him on his back and he's carrying a sheep that way and they're going down a hill that way. Some other country, I couldn't understand the language. And then I've seen the, the one that I like the best. It evokes the memories or the, the, the feelings that I like in these verses where the, the lamb is right here. And I think that's what you see in Isaiah 40 when it says he will carry them in his bosom. I don't think if the lamb is around your neck, that's a bosom. But I am not an expert on body parts. But it seems like he's, he's carrying these lambs in a very loving way. And, and the reason I like this is I think we intuitively like little things. You know, like... Who doesn't like a little puppy? I'm not a big fan of cats, but who doesn't like a little kitten 
right? And, and babies, I mean, you, you have to love holding a baby because holding a baby just makes you relax. It's just, it's just the best thing in the world. Grandchildren are a close second when they're little. So it seems like this caring is a very close, personal thing with God. Isaiah 46, 4, Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. I mean, these are very tender, compassionate, kind phrases. And you need to think about that when you think of God. I remember in college, I read a quote. I think it might have been Tozer, but I don't know. The quote is, the most important thing about you is what you think of when someone says the word God. And so I want you to think of God who carries you. Also in Isaiah 63, 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is a shepherd who bends down and picks up sheep and carries them. There's a number of verses that talk about holding God holding us with, our, with his hand. Even one that says, I have engraven you on the palms of my hand. It's almost like a tattoo. He has engraven us on the palm of his hand as if he had a palm, as if he had a hand. It's an expression to say, you're dear to me. I love you. I'll never forget you. There's two more, and then we'll close. And these are really uh, just wonderful expressions. They're not exactly caring. They're in a different um, uh, metaphor. So Deuteronomy 32.11, as an angel that stirs, sorry, as an eagle that stirs up her nest, that flutters over her young he spreads abroad his wings, and he took them. He bore them on his pinions. Now, in both of these we're going to look at, it seems like God the Father is using a female image of love to express the way he loves to us. So he says, as an eagle that stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, he spreads his wings, and he, he, he cares for them. This same idea of, of, of wings and caring is found in Matthew 23, 37. So Jesus is going to the cross. Uh, Jerusalem is really where the people of God are centered. That's where the worship is centered. So when Jesus talks about Jerusalem, he means God's people. And at this point, God's people are taking him right to the cross. They're not just not listening. They're not just putting a sock in his mouth. They are going to kill him to shut him up. And they do that. They are, if you could look at their uh, faces, 
It's full of anger. Their fists are held like this. They're drooling. They're just angry. So he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, that are, and stones those who are sent to it. In other words, ever since you've been a city, you have rejected God's messengers. So what does he say? I'm going to level you. No. The first thing he says is, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? I can't imagine another human being saying that to people that hate him. Would you? Here he is saying, you have hated me, you have hated my messengers, you have hated my word, but what I really want to do is just hold you. I'm just like a, like a hen with her chicks. I want to protect you. I want to guard you. But you wouldn't have it. It's really amazing. It's a man saying he wants to love like a mother. This is a rejected, spurned, hated, mocked man who just wants to love. It's just stunning, stunning to consider how Christ can love in the face of hatred. And I said before that we like to cuddle little things. Well, to us, uh, sorry, to God, we're little. <laughs> and he's massive. And I want you to think of that. He wants to love you. You know, you may think you don't need to be carried. Or you, or you don't need to shepherd. As an American, uh, we're pretty independent. And that's probably true in other parts of the world as, as well. And as men... I don't want to be carried. I'll carry. I'll carry a child. I'll carry things. But we don't need that. Yeah, you do. Every human being has this deep desire to love and to be loved. Think about that. If you're in Christ, God loves you. He wants to carry you and hold you. Think about how deeply God loves you. Even when he is rejected, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to love you like a mother does. I want to gather you together and guard you. I mean, obviously, he ends up and he says, But because you refused, there's going to be wrath. So, you may not agree with this, but I'll say this. In a sense... God wants to bend down, pick us up, and nurture and love us. He wants to say, dare I say, hug us. It's, that's getting kind of right. But the verses we read, it seems to suggest that. Is that pressing the words of Scripture too far when Jesus says, I want to gather you together? If you don't want to think of God hugging you, he is definitely not distant are cold, but he's tender, compassionate, caring, nurturing, and kind-hearted. I have to admit that for me, 
because of my sinful nature, it's easier for me to say to you, God loves you. I don't have a problem with that. I do struggle saying God loves me. So I don't know if you're like that, but that's really hard. I can say it, but emotionally and intellectually to think that God loves me. God loves you, I get that. Me? Eh. And it might be that I'm kind of thinking that he couldn't love me because I don't deserve it. Yeah, I don't. But he does. So let's talk about uh, where his love is seen most clearly by bringing two aspects of this psalm together, and we'll, we'll close. We looked at the wrath of God in this psalm, and it ends with the tender love of God. And the event that so beautifully uh, blends both of these together is the cross of Christ. We witness the awful wrath of God that must be expressed because God is holy. Sin must be punished. But we see that the love of God in the cross, we see that in two ways. One, the way the Father loves the Son and gives Him as a substitute, and the way the Son loves the Father who willingly goes to the cross. All his life knowing he would go there. And this love is so evident. And God gave the most precious, the most treasured person he could offer. And the triune God in love and perfect justice offer the sinless Christ out of love for the glory of God and love for us. So as you think about this God, he's the, the shepherd that you need all your life. Where are you in relation to this God? There's no way any of us could see where you're at right now. But you may be mad at God. The Bible is full of people mad at God. It seems like most people in the Bible are mad at God sometime in, in their life. And you may think the things that you've gone through aren't fair to you. You may be distant. I mean, how would, how would anyone know where you're at? But I say to you, you need to come back to the Father who loves you, to the one who gave his life for you. You need to love him, and you need to receive his love. You need to get over, like I need to get over, the fact that it's hard for me to say God loves me. I have a problem with that because I have, I'm a sinner. But he does. He loves you. If you're in Christ, he loves you. If you're not, you need to repent and get right with God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this psalm. Uh, I think there's probably every chapter in the Bible that we could look at that is full of both the wrath of God and the, the tenderness of God. I do pray that if I've said anything that's not accurate or true, that people would forget it. But anything that we said that's helpful and biblical and draws people to Christ, that they would not forget it. They would think about it. Lord, I thank you that in the cross, in the gospel, we find the love of God that is just overwhelming. There, it's so hard for us to comprehend. And I pray that you would help us 
to love you back. I pray this now in Christ's name.